Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Air Force JAG School podcast. Today, we have another book review. Uh, we are going to be discussing The Good Earth by Pearl S. Buck. It was a Pulitzer Prize winner, as well as uh, Pearl is a Nobel Prize winner. Um, so with me today, as always, I have my co-host, Charlie Hedden, Major Hedden. Howdy. I have Lieutenant Colonel Charles Gartland. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for having me back. And then we are joined again by Dr. Liz Woodward. Excited to be here, Erin. She's a professor, of course, at Air War <laughs> College. So today, um, again, spoilers. As with all our book reviews, we are going to heavily spoil this book. So if you wanted to read it for yourself, and we suggest that you do, uh, you might want to go read it and then come back. But today we are, again, talking about the good earth. Uh, and Dr. Woodward, why are we talking about this one? China. Yes. <laughs> China is... And you could end it right there. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, China is on all of our radars in different ways than it has been in the last 40, 50 years. And this is a quintessential book about China, however written by an American. The interesting thing about Pearl Buck, she, at four months old, was carried to China by her parents and then lived there for a several decades. And her book, The Good Earth, was published in 1931, went a long way to help Americans better understand China. Everybody, I think, understands China was very much a closed country in some ways. And her book really revealed to uh, international reading audience, not just Americans, the structure of Chinese life and not just imperial life, but the life of a village. And I think it really helped those outside China understand what the true struggles were and allowed us to befriend and help China when it was in need. And that was that's one of the important things that her book did, raising awareness of a country that people really didn't understand. And, and go, go ahead. Go oh, ahead, and in 1931 and 32, two years in a row, it was a bestseller in the United States. And that was the year, the second year was the one that she won the Pulitzer in 32. And by 38, she had been such a prolific author that they awarded her the Nobel Prize for literature, the first American woman to win. And it wasn't just for this book. This is the first of three books that talk specifically about village life. But she also wrote memoir biographies of her missionary pa parents. And those were considered masterpieces as well. And she very much, after World War II, wanted to go back to China. She could not. The Communist Party refused to let her enter the country again. She was an American imperialist. She very much wanted to go back. She tried to go back with Richard Nixon in 1972. Unfortunately, she died in 1973, and she never got back to her beloved China. She was out of China for just a few years in her early life. She left once to go to college in Virginia, and she married a man, and they both taught at universities around the Nanjing, China. And she came back to the U.S. shortly after she gave birth to her first child. Her husband had a sabbatical, and during his year of sabbatical, while she had a brand new baby, while they were adopting another child, she got her master's degree at Cornell. <laughs> no. Whoa. Um, yeah. And at some point when all of this was happening, she spent her mornings over the course of a year writing The Good Earth. So everybody else handled whatever they needed to handle in the morning, and she would go away to the attic and write. So it took her about a year to do this. The Nobel Committee said that they were giving this award to her for the notable works which pave the way to human sympathy passing over widely separated racial boundaries and for the studies of human ideals, which are a great and living art of portraiture. The Swedish Academy feels that it acts in harmony and accord with the aim of Alfred Nobel's dreams for the future. So this is one the Academy got right. Yes. In my, in, in my mind, and, and maybe we'll have some time to discuss later because there actually was some, some pretty trenchant criticism uh, of this book as absolutely. a negative criticism yes, of, of absolutely. this book. And as I read some of those reviews online, I couldn't help but but think of the haughty aristocrats described 
in the book itself, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 I, I really identified them with a lot of a lot of those critics who just really couldn't appreciate the simple the simple life of the farmer. But more on that later. Yeah, she she actually addressed some of those criticisms in her acceptance speech in thirty eight, saying that she did not write for artists or other novelists. She wrote, "I have been taught," she said, "to want to write for these people." the Chinese people that she wrote about, if they are reading their magazines by the million, then I want my stories there rather than in magazines read only by a few. I, I, I have to applaud her. I'd, I'd like to go back and read that now that you've mentioned it, Liz. But I think and this is a discussion Charlie and I were having before we started started recording that unfortunately with a lot of these literary critics, and we could do a whole podcast on mm, that, yes. unfortunately, mm-hmm. we, we won't get a chance to. But uh, with a lot of these literary uh, critics, it seems as though that if it's not ponderous and inscrutable and impenetrable, <laughs> it simply can't be a good book. Right. And I, I, I think in, in many ways, it's really the opposite. I think it's hard to write like this. Anyone can write complicated, incomprehensible gibberish and that's not what this is and i think that there are some of the criticisms out there i think are are fair uh but 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 the writing style in my opinion is is not one of them yeah and i think too i mean especially her contemporaries in the 30s and 40s it always makes me think of um, Dorothy Parker, Algonquin Roundtable. Yes. What a pretentious bunch of jerks that was. <laughs> Ms. Dorothy Parker got a lot of the same criticism I think most women did. I know I read a book review the New York Times did, and they were talking about um, contemporary book reviews in the 30s when she won all the awards. And all the male authors were like, I could have thought of 15 male authors who could have gotten it. Oh, I guess Willa Cather, if it had to be a chick. Um, and not to knock Willa Cather, because she did write a very good book. Yeah, um, she's written some wonderful things. Yeah, so I think she was kind of climbing uphill a little bit there. Even if she'd written a masterpiece, they probably would have criticized her for it. Um, but I also think it's important to kind of make a note here. Uh, this is a white woman missionary writing from the perspective of a Chinese man in China. It's uh, a remarkable which is Thoughts. remarkable. Take that in yes. for a second. In, and of course, in the 1930s, um, and I know right now, contemporarily, uh, in discussions about books, we are having a conversation about identity and who is writing books from the perspective of whom. Um, and there's a lot of discussion about who the voice is, who's the author, and who's the voice that they're portraying in the book, and are they trying to represent mm. somebody who is not them and not the experience that they've actually had, uh, kind of putting words in the mouths of other people. So we're not really having that discussion today, um, but I wanted to mention it first because I think it's notable um, for a lot of different reasons to that she is a white woman having this writing from this perspective. But this from I looked it up because I kind of wanted to see what contemporary our contemporary um, like modern day viewpoint was of this book. And from the Asian scholars that I took a look at, it looks like they still consider this book to have a lot of value, despite the fact that it was not actually written by a Chinese man. Because in the moment that this was written, most of the writing coming from China was propaganda, it was idealist, Mm -hmm. it was government writing, and it wasn't novel writing. And she was one of the only people actually writing about accurately the day-to-day lives of the people living in China. And you can see I should have the freedom to do that, not yes. being, she has not the a detachment. Yeah. She has the yes. detachment and from the, that culture the to education. be able to do it. Yeah, right. The culture she's representing here, or that she experienced, I gotta think, very few women were even allowed to learn and study like she to the extent that she did. Like we've already right. um, kind of mentioned off air the fact that she was tutored in you know chinese uh scholastic uh i guess fields not just you know just reading and writing and stories and things like that as well as playing with other people there so she um i think it's very interesting and i will also point out that for what it's worth oprah didn't have a problem with it back in 2004 <laughs> yeah okay well <laughs> oprah says then we're and really <laughs> oprah yeah. oprah got it back on Back in back in the book clubs, as I understand mm-hmm. it, uh, I was I, I don't recall it back at the time, but uh, but that's in, in what I've been reading. It looks like yeah, that really it was. Oh, it back in fact, our copy doesn't our copy. Yeah, it yeah, says it book, right on the front. Oprah's book club. Yes, it, yes on our copy. Yes, it does. And you know, I think that it, it's right that she's this book in particular of all her works kind of comes back because she herself was an advocate for women's rights, 
and the rights of um, Asian children. She helped found with Oscar Hammerstein. That's that's an interesting name to drop into this. Oscar Hammerstein, and I can't remember the other, um, another very famous American founded an adoption agency to take care of uh, children who were biracial and therefore had no place in Chinese culture. And so she founded this uh, several different organizations to take care of women's rights, um, children's rights. She wrote, wrote widely on Chinese and Asian cultures. And she was truly bilingual in the sense that at four months old, she started living in China and was raised with parents that spoke multiple languages and all around her. So I think part of my thinking about a white woman who's writing about an Asian, a book from perspective of Asian man and his family. She probably more than a lot of authors who attempt that kind of cross-cultural, cross-gender writing probably did a better job simply because she had been immersed in that world for so long and really didn't know much else from 1892 in the fall, but the year she was born until the thirties. In some ways, she was in China. She really was of China. So I I get the importance of identity in literature now, but there is a time when, for instance, we would never question Charles Dickens writing a novel from the perspective of a woman at the time he was writing. I made the same comparison yesterday, but I said um, from the the point of view of somebody who's experiencing poverty, because he was an enormous advocate for poverty in England and in London specifically, and he wrote you know, he was never an orphaned working for a pickpocket gang. Right. Right. I but mean, that's not the same thing as writing from the perspective of somebody who's a different race than you. Right. But, um, you know, and there are certain, I think it, we can have this discussion at another point. But sure. <laughs> I do think it's, sometimes you have to take a look at the book in context. And I think you have to yes. look about the intentions of the author and their accuracy and what they're trying to do with it. She's not pretending to be a Chinese man. She's not selling right. this. Right. She didn't write Wang Lung on the cover and pretend that she was a Chinese man writing a book. Right. You know, she, everyone knew who she was when she wrote it. So I think, and I think her intentions, because we talked about this, my concern when I started reading this book was how much of this was going to be colored by her personal opinions and her religion because she was a missionary. <laughs> And we're going to talk a little bit more about her religion and religion in the book in a little bit. But from what we were able to kind of learn about her, I think she was trying to be as accurate as possible. And I don't think she actually inserted her own perspective on this very much at all. And in a patriarchal society, she was being completely accurate in that sense and writing it from the perspective of a man. And one more thought along the lines of what you were saying before. Liz, uh, in terms of her perspective and why she would be well positioned, mm-hmm. and you mentioned that she was immersed in in that and in, in Chinese culture from the time you said she was four four, four months, months old, four <laughs> months old. So she was living in it, but she was not of it. She right. was she she was freed from all the trappings of the culture that would mm-hmm. have bound so many chinese almost all chinese people from being able to comment freely on some of these observations and at the time so and so in in many regards i think that she was ideally positioned it's it's an odd thing to say but yeah. ideally positioned to be writing from the perspective of a chinese man. Well, there were no villagers in China who were going to write a successful English novel about their lives at that time. Um, So, you know, in a way, it's a cultural artifact, right? That we wouldn't have otherwise. It's almost anthropology. It it feels that way. That's well, especially with all the discussion of the earth. Yeah, Yeah. ethnographic sort of observation, very detailed. Because I think she probably wrote about things and details that if it was your daily life, it wouldn't occur to you to write about because it wouldn't be noteworthy to you. But yeah. to her, because it was she was kind of observing from the outside, almost it's almost like a documentary or something. Like yeah. she kind of ha- it almost has that lens of like I'm just here to observe and I'm just writing down what I see. That that's the yeah. outsider again, the the outsider perspective because no peasant 
in any society, whether we're talking about a European peasant or we're talking about a Chinese peasant, would really find anything remarkable about this quotidian day-to-day -day existence that they had. But it was a remarkable thing to her and yeah. certainly was remarkable to the American readers who just uh, devoured this mm -hmm. book. Yeah. I forgot, Liz, if you mentioned like how many millions of copies or maybe it's millions. When okay, when we were All talking kinds before. Of languages. Right. And I'm so glad that we actually mentioned the good earth in part of this initial discussion because what a fascinating title for a book that by all measures, it is not a good earth. It's very unforgiving. It's very unforgiving. Earth. It's, it is the earth that causes famine. It is the earth that turns families against each other. It is earth that kills. And yet, that is the title of the book. I think that really comes, it, it becomes an ironic title almost by the end. It is. Ab and, absolutely. And that, that, that's one we'll, we'll get to later on when we start talking about, start talking about wealth. All right. So, uh, without further ado, I, I'm just going to tell you all a little bit about what happens in the book so you can follow along with us. Um, again, this is just super, super brief. I certainly can't get into as much detail um, as the book probably deserves. Uh, but essentially, uh, this book takes place in a small Chinese farming community, um, mostly rice, but it seems like also wheat and a couple garlic and a couple other um, crops, I guess would be the basic word. Basic food stuffs. Basic food stuffs, very basic. Um, and the main character, uh, whose kind of point of view we're with the whole time, is Wang Lung. He is a farmer. Uh, in the first page, he wakes up and it's his wedding day. Uh, he and his father had negotiated to purchase a bride uh, who was a slave in the probably the most wealthy local family's home. Um, and the rest of the book is basically a story of their lives, except that it's actually just really the story of Wang Lung's life. Because, um, I don't know, in my opinion, I think people are a little bit of a footnote to Wang Lung, and they really only exist as they reflect upon him. But uh, Wang Lung and Olan have several years of prosperity on their farm, uh, thanks to their mutual hard work and dedication to the land. Um, but then uh, after they give birth to a few children and go through a few prosperous years, uh, the entire community is hit by a famine. Um, Wang Lung and Olan have to bring their children and uh, Wang Lung's father to a southern city just to survive. <laughs> uh, people in the local community are literally starting to eat each other um, because the uh, famine has gotten so terrible. So they move to a southern city where they kind of a, they live in a little bit of a what we call like a tent city. A little homeless area where they put up a little reed hut and Olan takes the children and the old father out every day to beg for food and for money and Wang Lung pulls a rickshaw um, and they survive. Uh, while they're in the city there is civil unrest. Uh, Wang Lung is somewhat oblivious to this. He's much more concerned about actual survival of his family uh, and he doesn't really do much to um, get to know the other peasants who are kind of sheltering with them against this the wall of a big house belonging to a rich family um but one day there is an uprising and the people break into this house they pass the wall to the riches on the other side um and wenglan olan uh managed to steal uh enough of their wealth coins and jewels to get them back to their farm they buy more property they buy an ox uh, and they end up buying property from the family, the rich family in the local area, the Huangs, where Olan was once a slave, his wife Olan. Uh, they work the land and they prosper to the point that Wang Lung actually becomes sort of a, a larger landowner. He's able to hire other people to work for him. And he eventually just sort of becomes a man of leisure. Uh, his sons are able to go to school. They don't have to work the land because they have laborers. But as a man of leisure, uh, Wang Long acquires a concubine named Lotus and brings her into their household, which is uh, very dismaying to Olan. Um, and Olan eventually dies. She has complications from the birth of their twins a few years ago. She just says, like, her vitals are on fire. Uh, I don't know what that means. It sounds awful. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> frankly, <laughs> it sounds awful. Um, so Olan eventually <clears throat> dies. Um and uh, the family 
just gets richer and richer and they end up moving into the Huang's house, the old house where Olan used to work as a slave. Um, and they just sort of are rich and hang out. And a little decadent. And a little decadent. A little decadent. And we'll, we'll definitely cover that yeah. one. Since it, that, that, that was a, actually a really nice summary, Erin, of, of the whole, because it is pretty sweeping uh, in, definitely in what epic. happens in yeah. every, any one of those events from the time that uh, from the time that Wang purchases land from the landed family uh, in town to their demise with the first great famine, the move to the south, any one of those events is 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 much 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 richer in detail that's a great that's a great summary uh should we pause here for a second and just talk about because you mentioned a, a number of characters there mm -hmm. so olan yes because uh. one one thing that struck me uh in your reprise there Aaron, is that you you mentioned that it was their their mutual work that brought them that initial prosperity and i yes. think that's a fair i think that that's actually a, a fair statement i'm here to advocate for olan however yes. and yes however <laughs> and 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 wang is certainly toward the beginning of the book he is a very hard worker oh, and yes, he takes yeah. a, a great pleasure actually in what he does he really derives satisfaction from working the land but I had, and I, and I said that I wanted to pause and talk about this simply because it was, th this was one of the most excruciating literary experiences of my life to read about Olan. Not because it was bad. Not because, because she <laughs> is. It was heart-wrenching. It was it not. Is, yes. yes, it is. It is. She is the absolute embodiment of the utterly selfless wife and mother yeah she so to put into perspective her selflessness they had no she didn't have anyone to attend to her when she was giving birth to the children and and wang comments on this her husband yeah. that this is un, that this is unfortunate and i believe even mentioned hey isn't there someone who you know who we could bring in here and she had been a slave in the wealthy house and so she she didn't want to trouble anyone she didn't want to deal with that and so she goes into their bedroom and gives a birth on her own and in the midst of all of that is still tending to the cooking goes out and helps him in the fields she simply is a person with no consideration for herself and there's a hint in the book that oh perhaps that's because she's so because she is she is portrayed as being it, it's odd because she's portrayed as being dull <clears throat> and not being is. right but she's actually probably the most astute of them all and so and I know it because I can see both of you yeah. just are just just <laughs> waiting to jump in on this because I mean she's really just such a powerful character but she's actually successful in everything that she does she is so resourceful yes she is successful in childbirth mm -hmm. she is successful even in her thievery which was not yes. which is like she's a successful beggar which was absolutely yes. essential for the family she's successful in assisting her husband out in the field she is successful in childbirth successful in all that she does and even on a number of occasions it's a it's a fascinating point in the book when if you'll recall during the during the famine during that first famine that forces them to flee south and the desperation has reached such a fever pitch that the villagers storm their house thinking that they have all of this stored up food which by that point yeah. they didn't and it is oh and so there's this there's this mob angry of mob. angry men, <laughs> yeah. essentially. Mm -hmm. And Olan is the one who stands up and not her husband and shames them. Yes. And says, What you know, how have you no, know, you know, have you no honor that you should that you could be here in our house? And of course they take a look at her and they're just they're they're stunned, of course, because here is this woman, and in the Chinese culture at the time, this was it was not her place. Well, she walked behind her husband, as was walked, her place. Literally trailed yes. behind her husband. So, and she is the one who stands up to them, and and you see this throughout the book. Her decisions and her resourcefulness, Aaron, as you say, are are are, are life uh, changing. She just sort of silently takes charge, and she so as a child, her family experienced famine. And they had been begging and eventually her parents sold her to this rich family so she could work as a slave in their household and they would get some money for her so 
And then she worked for many years as a slave in this household. So she has a lot of practical skills, but also a lot of life experience that she draws on. So she knows right away. She's like, no, we have to go south. Yeah. And then they get there and she's like, well, we're going to have to beg. And she just like, they get back and people have like ransacked their house, even taken the, the roof off at the reeds. Yeah. And he says she just, she like sits there and she just like, and she puts, the roof is back on the house. Right. Hold on, she just takes charge. You know, she comes into that house and before you know it, it's tidy. There's a fire going. There's new this, there's new that. And then she takes such good care of the house. And one day she just kind of shows up in the field and she's like, I don't have anything to do in the house. Do you need help yeah. out here? <laughs> so, and then she and, does all the, she works on the land too. And the description of her working alongside Wanglong is just joyful. Yes. It's beautiful and joyful. From his perspective, he talks about the rhythm of them working together. Mm -hmm. And he describes how her clothing, she gets so sweaty, the clothing just sticks to her. and But she doesn't stop. Mm -mm. She works as hard as he does. Until and she's, she's literally <clears throat> so pregnant that she has, she's like, hey, I'll be right back. She has a baby and then like, yeah, okay, we can keep going. Let me thrash this wheat. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. And I think it, he does her, and this is, I really started to dislike Wang Long oh, at a certain you, point. It, oh. It's because Liz, it's because of that, because it is a beautiful depiction yeah. of yeah. peasant husband and, and wife working in synergy. Yeah. Yeah. And then that makes the betrayal. Or what, I, it feels like I, I, mean, arbit I mean, I, I in, in my mind, it's a, it's a betrayal. I think it was he a betrayal to Olan. A betrayal, but right. but, yeah. but yeah. it makes the betrayal sting all that much more. Yeah, yeah. I I would as I've been thinking about this book, I've wondered if Olan is the good Earth. Hmm. She's a metaphor for all good that comes Life from springs. Yeah. from her. Yeah. I, I, because I really loved what Charlie said right before we started recording. Well, you know, the book's about her. The book's about Olan. And, and really, yeah. she, yes. is the, she is the only character who stays true to who she is and exhibits an unbelievable strength and determination throughout everything, even when her vitals are on fire. Right, right. Charlie, what were you about to say? I thought... Well, I... Uh, gone back to the passage that y'all just talked about where there this is one of the first times she's working with him and she says moving together you know in a perfect rhythm without a word hour after hour he fell into a union with her which took the pain from his labor he had mm -hmm. no articulate thought of anything there was only this perfect perfect sympathy of movement of turning this earth of theirs over and over to the sun this earth which formed their home and fed their bodies and made their gods and I thought that was, to me, one of the focal points of the book, just symbolically, like the man, the woman, the earth. And this is the most harmonious, probably, that they ever. Yes. <gasps> and, and, and in their in their poverty, really, yeah. in their yeah. relative poverty. And it's the way he time. says, and it's their earth, it's their food, it's their yes. labor. And it does sound, it sounds like, oh, like this was, and even they mentioned a couple times in the book where he's like, I couldn't have gotten any luckier. You know, in in who they gave me as a wife, because they specifically asked for a woman who's not pretty, um, and but it's you learn though over time. Wanglin just really does not appreciate Olan. I think is putting it mildly, and he he doesn't kind of say this at first because she's pretty quiet. She doesn't really speak a lot, and when she does speak, she takes her time with what she says. It's and consequential he, when yes. she speaks. Yes, and he he gives. He has the impression or the belief that she is not smart. She's kind of mm -hmm. dumb. And it astonishes him to find out that she has, like, conversations with other people in the family and has expressed opinions. <laughs> so he does not love her. He's very clear about that. But he doesn't – I guess he doesn't say this to her. So they have a young daughter, and Olan is going to start binding her feet. And Olan makes the comment to the daughter, because the daughter is saying, you know, it's painful. And Olan says, well, you want your husband to love you because my husband does not. And it's because I'm not beautiful. My feet are not bound. It was painful to read. And it was even painful yes. to Wang to hear. To hear. <clears throat> but he acts like he just found out the dog could talk. 
And he's like, Oland thinks things like that? She noticed? And he repeatedly expresses astonishment Mm -hmm. about that. That first time whenever she has this plan for when her son is born and how she's going to go back to this great house where she was a slave. And she describes this to him. And he says, that's the most words she's ever said at once. And holy cow, the dog can talk. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And it happens. It it happens happens exactly like that. And it was prophetic. It was absolutely prophetic because that happened. And I I think that he has talked himself into thinking that she is sort of a dullard because he feels guilt that he doesn't love her. Because um, there's a scene where in the the uprising, while they're in the southern city, they both help break into this house, and they split up. And Wang Long uh, kind of extorts gold out of uh, a fat rich man who's trying to make an escape. Uh, and he pretends he's going to hurt him if the guy doesn't give him gold. And then they find out after they get home that Olan, having been a slave in a wealthy household, knows where they hide the good stuff. And she <laughs> stole a handful of jewels that she had smuggled out, like, on her body, like, in a little bag. And he takes them from her. And he he has this this thought where he's feeling some guilt. And he says, well... She's so dumb, she probably just picked them up because she thought that they were beautiful, not because she actually understood what the value of them was. What were you going to say? <laughs> we may have to take this out. But <laughs> the the place where she has this bag is in her bosom. Oh, yeah. Right? And it's not the only time they talk about her providing for the family. Yeah, there's, there, her yeah. Bosom. there's a oh, very, yeah. there's <clears throat> a, I, I think probably for the most one of those vivid depictions of that that I've that I've actually right. Even ever while read. While they're starving, she has this newborn, and she's able to feed the newborn right uh, from herself. Yeah, and I, I it's the good earth. More thinking yeah. about her as the earth. It's just another way where not just for her babies, but even for her, for her man, for her family, for her future generations, she provides out of her bosom. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's. I think that's yeah. so. You know, uh, English class of you. Yeah, no, yes. yeah it's um, the end of Grapes of Wrath. Yes. I compared this to Steinbeck, too. Did you? Yes. Oh, yeah. It's very Dust Bowl. It's, it's very yes. yeah. Steinbeck. Hard, hard yeah. scrabble. Very, hard, very hard to read. Very hard existence. to even experience in the comfort of my 21st century home. Yeah. Reading it was painful. Yes, yes. In fact, I was talking to Charlie before we started recording here. And of course, we just we had a previous podcast on Day in the Life of Ivan Donosevich with the same esteemed gathering here. Uh, that One of my favorite podcasts uh, of all time, by the way. Yeah, for our contributions, uh, as far as it goes. But this and that and that was so that's the gulag yeah. out right. in Siberia. Yep. So those are all political uh, prisoners for the most part. And they have in a very, very difficult life. But Indeed. this is orders of magnitude worse than that. Worse than uh, Solzhenitsyn's depiction of the gulag. Yeah. So it, it was hard to read, Liz. No the, doubt about the it. The hardest part, I think, was um, at, right before they decided to go south. When Olan gives birth to a, going, a skeleton, going yeah. to be an underweight baby who does not live, and Wang Lung is praying, please, please don't, you know, hurt my wife, don't hurt my baby, please don't. This child can't possibly. And he said, maybe it won't. Maybe there will be no breath. And he hears because, of course, Olan is giving birth by herself alone again in the other room, which which she did for all right for she all did, the children, yeah. I believe. And oh, and by the way, cleaned up everything. Before having her husband enter the room and see his children. And that was after That's, cooking dinner. Right. Usually. Make sure, make sure people had food. Um, so he hears this, the very faint cry of the baby and he thought, well, that's it. And then no more noise. And he takes the baby away to bury the dead baby. And the description of how he holds the baby and its little head bobbing around is so horrific. Yeah. And it's just a tiny little skeleton. He takes it outside to bury it. And he sees a hungry dog. And he throws a rock at the dog. Thwack. Doesn't move. And he just lays the baby down and thinks, maybe this is for the best. But not before he doesn't see 
telltale bruises on the baby's neck right. from adult fingerprints. And to, to put it to put it in context yeah. for the reader, which which anyone can understand uh, when, when they read this, just to to put into perspective the extent of the desperation the the book refers to cannibalism taking place yeah, in the village in the town. The uh, with his with his uncle his right, uncle's his, his uncle, uncle is actually filled out physically right. when when everyone one. is el- yeah he's right. literally fed by everyone while their family <laughs> the children's ha- uh, have the distended tummies of starvation right. eating he's dirt literally eating, eating a dirt, dirt gruel. with a little bit of water to make it a slurry to just temporarily fill their bellies will not keep you from dying only tiny bits of minerals i, and, I think it surpasses even grapes of wrath yeah aaron and would you liz would you agree yeah it's i felt that exact same level of comfort of discomfort but i felt this was so much worse yeah nobody cannibalizes in steinbeck that i recall <laughs> um it's just flat I out know, i can't flat I, out you know an what? american aaron and, i can't <laughs> yeah, I can't remember any cannibals in any Steinbecks. Emotional cannibalism for sure, but not, not literal. Yeah, but, not, not, not actual cannibals within your but, own family. Yeah, but the, the the kinds of things that happened during that famine time, mm-hmm. I just kept reading and thinking, did I skip this part in high school? Because this is horrifying. It certainly explains Alon's decision finally. Yes, she is, because she is all the one of who that makes cannibalism, it all of the eating of the, the cats, the dogs, the oxen, um, every piece of grass, they were boiling bark from trees and eating that. All of that leads to this horrifying moment when she has to give birth to this baby who she knows will not live and take her vital life that she needs to give to her yeah. children who are Older, she's stronger. already she's still trying to breastfeed their other daughter who is the fool yeah she it, well partly she doesn't develop correctly because of the starvation yeah and always has some kind of well i guess you deny food to a, a baby for long enough things are not going to go right yeah and clearly that was happening and, yeah, it and, stunted her development. And she's this enduring reminder throughout the book of those of those mm-hmm. times as yeah. they ultimately come into great wealth, at least relative to to all of their surroundings. Mm-hmm. So I think we've think uh, we've given the reader a good sense of Olan and yes. her, her sacrifices and what a remarkable person she was. Any other characters that we should t- take a moment on? Side obviously we're going to be talking about Wang since he's the centerpiece. Ar- the- arguably the centerpiece, Charlie, right? Do, how did you guys feel when you first read about the Huang family? Huang family. The the wealthy family when he when Wang picks up Olan for the first time and we see the absolute full corruption of a land a, a wealthy family who has too much the mother is an opium addict and can barely function they're they've gone through their wealth their concubines everywhere and they're they're just they're seedy and they're, they're seedy in they're their wealth and they're and and they're they're just really just really kind of distasteful people uh, mm-hmm. Poor, poor Wang. He goes in uh, to pick up, to pick up Olan, and he is just met with mockery and derision from from everyone uh, because he's because he is a poor farmer at that right. time. And the and the and the decadence is incredible, and it and it only it continues to to descend. Yeah, uh, into into the abyss as the as the and, book goes and he, on. And he keeps going through these courtyards and these courtyards, and you can just imagine the elaborate decor and room after room. And I I think it's such a fascinating bookend to where the family ends up. Yeah, and the, the rich same sons. thing yeah. happens at the end to his sons. I think this is. Uh them being separate from the earth these houses yeah. this townhouse yes right is mm-hmm. not made of clay the the passage i read earlier about them tilling the ground goes on to say something about this is you know well it, it said it in that passage you know this is where the this this earth provided their home literally right clay walls of these houses except when you get into town and then you right. have these brick tiles you have wood you have pillars you have mm-hmm. courtyards and courtyards and the picture there of being this, this distance from the earth 
uh, is a picture of your distance from health, from harmony, from, yeah. you know, virtue. The, the and... gods themselves they worshipped were formed with clay and mm -hmm. lived in a little handmade hut. And they would redress those little gods every year and prop them up with new clay arms and heads. And, and the idea, I think that's really hitting uh, an important note. The further they get from being connected to the good earth, the harder it is to retain their health and mental wellness. And I think another point on that is the, the, the Huang family and then later even Wang Lung, they own plenty. They have access mm -hmm. to lots of plots of land, right? Mm -hmm. But it does that doesn't save them being there because they're still disconnected, right? That's not yeah. them working it, feeling it, walking through it, um, and working with it. It's just them extorting it. Mm -hmm. um, it's a, it's a really another one of these themes that transcends culture and mm -hmm. transcends time. You see it all throughout history that there are these certain individuals who acquire wealth from the land. Mm -hmm. Because of the wealth that they've acquired from the land, they develop power and the ability, the wherewithal, economic wherewithal to be able to acquire things. And that in turn enables them to, uh, such as what happened with Wang here, he's now a money lender, he can charge interest to people. And so this wealth accumulates that is a product of the land, but transmutes now into a wealth that is disconnected from the land, even though it owes its origins to the land. Yeah. And so now this person who has derived everything originally from the land is disconnected from it and ceases to know it and you see wang throughout the book go get, being with being literally being in the land moving away from it and then ultimately coming back to it and you see that oscillation all throughout the book yeah it's like losing a tether an important tether to your soul when you're disconnected from the land and olan when she's not there when she's not considered You've, you've, it's like you've severed the tie. Right, right. It's, 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 it's really, I mean, it's something that's marked all civilizations. Uh, Jeffersonian agrarianism. Mm -hmm. I mean, Jefferson, Jefferson wondered in his writings, could America remain a vibrant democracy once it became an industrial, an industrialized mm -hmm. nation because of, because of, because of the, the social ills and all of the, uh, unintended consequences right. of of wealth originally produced by the land. Yeah, I could think of a lot of uh, distasteful social consequences of uh, American agrarianism <laughs> in Jefferson's time. Sure. Oh, for yeah. sure. For sure. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. In all in, in all fairness, yeah. right? Not as but but to the to the extent that there is something bad that happens, and a cool. Well, actually, Aaron, now that you say it, that's that's actually a great. That's a great point because, of course, Jefferson Jefferson's wealth was in large part based on the land, but of course of of slave of the right. slave labor that worked it. He was not and there picking he his became yeah. right, and he and he became in a sense very detached mm -hmm. from his own land. Also, so yeah, that's a, that's interesting because he was one of these landed aristoc one of these landed aristocrats that had moments in his life which he actually recognized in his writings where he plunged into a bit of this decadence. And of course, now we know there's this historical consensus that he probably had a, had a wedlock child with one of his slaves, which takes us right right, right back, back again to, to the good to the to the good earth. Yeah, and the concubines. Um and just a kind of an author note, uh her husband, who she lived in China with, was an agricultural uh economist. So, yeah, yeah, so he definitely, I think that's one of the, probably one of the reasons that she focuses so much on the land and farming is because I think they're probably pretty immersed in it in their personal lives. So, again, speaking a little bit about um, China in this moment in history, right, where, uh, you know, Pearl, Buck, and her husband were living um, and where Wang Long, when this is set, the book is a little vague about details. Wang Long mm -hmm. is really not uh, tuned in 
to the goings on in Beijing or in any right. which, which is part, the part of the point. Yeah. And you're yeah. kind of left to wonder by the end of it to, to what to what to what degree is it actually advantageous to have all this knowledge of world events. Right. And, oh, and it's agree. so interesting because he certainly he doesn't live his life in consideration at all of what's going on in the government or in the country at large. He's to the point oblivious. that yeah. to, when yeah. he moves to the south and he does he's like foreigners and he's like, oh I'm a foreigner. And then he's like, oh, no, wait, I guess I'm Chinese. And it's, he's so detached from it, except that obviously it influences the entire existence that he lives. Mm-hmm. What were you going to say, Charlie? Well, I was going to say he, that along those lines, he talks about war at one point. Like I would talk about a meteor shower. <laughs> like, you know, I've heard of those, but there's just never been one very close like, to me. And, uh, it yeah. would be cool to see one up close one day. Yeah. <laughs> and ultimately, he does have a son who actually joins the military. And, and Wang is just aghast at this prospect. Well, because it's kind of like low class of him. To join the military. It's not out of... There certainly isn't any patriotism No, involved. No. In fact, he actually, very explicitly, the son says he just wants to... He just wants to see something different and 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 get away and and that is a that certainly has been a med- you know, motivation throughout time for people going into the military. Yeah, well, and there was conscription, like active conscription in the book, to the point where Wang Lung works nights to avoid to it. avoid it. For yeah. a while Literally, he's grabbing people city. off the street and like shoving them into a cart. <laughs> right. So, especially yeah. from that perspective of Wang Lung, like this was this was you could get. Shanghai into <laughs> into the military <laughs> Where when I was from. coming up, yeah. and now you want to go do that, which I think um, brings me to a point. I think I, w- I would like to piggyback on something Colonel Gartland said about wealth and the generational part of it. Um, is that another byproduct of this wealth we see that transcends cultures all over the place? Is this idea that this family that has uh, worked so hard to build this wealth? ends up using that wealth to protect their the next generation from the very things that equipped them to uh, reach these heights in the first place. So that whenever it gets to this next generation, they are ill-equipped. They're soft. <laughs> totally They're detached soft from and the spoiled land. Yeah. and detached and ungrateful. And they have no idea what any of this means. And they can't because they didn't build it. And that, that you see across time and culture and history everywhere that these second third fourth generations just aren't capable of what that founding generation did did you get to the end of the book charlie and think oh that can't be it there's another page because the ending just solidifies exactly what you were saying about the father being he's very old and almost yeah um, almost ludicrous in the eyes of his children and he's very upset in the last few pages of the book. You can't sell the land. You can't sell the land. I hear you talking about selling the land. That's crazy. And they say, no, no, father, we're not going to sell the land. But the last moment, he's they're between him. They've calmed him down. And the sons look at each other like, yeah, we're totally selling the land. <laughs> and, and, and I thought, oh, that... Oh, that's horrible because the good earth is now gone. It is... Uh, it is... It depressingly has... realistic, arguably. Absolutely. But enormously unsatisfying and I felt like as a reader what after all this you're going to take me from the land I can't even in my mind go back to that I have to live with this knowledge it was I I clearly didn't remember the book from high school but did you have that feeling at the end like oh this is so typical of ungrateful children yeah (laughs) Absolutely. And you can see it coming a mile away. Oh, like, oh, yeah. oh yeah. The, the When they start <coughs> describing the last third of the book is a lot about the personalities of his, especially his oldest two yeah. sons and their their differences and their differences from him. And you can just you can just see it coming that they only appreciate this land for what it can buy them. Uh, one from a very stingy perspective and one from a very... Uh, That's right. Willing to spend on you know image and nice things, but but both of them they just it's all it is is, is asset generation and they are untethered from the land finally. Right. And Wang Lung's gonna die and he'll have no idea. Yeah, it's a full it's and just... this is this is your description by the way, so the reader knows not mine, but Charlie's from before we started recording. But you mentioned that essentially the cycle. 
the cycle had come. The earth, the earthen cycle had come 360 degrees because we had the Longs and their decadence and the collapse of mm-hmm. their family, the greatest landowners in the town with Wang acquiring, I think, all their property almost toward the, I mean, to include the mansion, Eventually, right? Yeah. yeah. All of their land to include the mansion. Uh, the, the Wong, his, uh, the, the patriarch had become completely uh, alienated from his family, just consumed with his concubines uh, and all of, and all of his other pleasures and not really aware of all the, the money that was being squandered. And, as, as their family collapses and then Wang's family ultimately takes over even that estate and now he has sons just like the Lord who had previously occupied uh, that that area and his sons are completely disconnected from the land and have never really worked the land at all uh, Aaron you you had mentioned as we as we started talking about that some historical context here mm-hmm. to kind of put this kind of put a bit of perspective on it and and as you said the it's it's vague as you go. This is not a political uh, treatise. Certainly, there's there's much in here that is the product of what's going on politically in China. And into your introductory comments, Liz, on why it is that we're reading this in our war college. And if I could uh, if I could sum it up, I would say that we're reading this for appreciation on great power competition, strategic competition. Uh, because the China that we have today as a strategic competitor was ultimately forged from all of the tumult that is taking place in this book. So as Aaron said, there aren't very many definite historical markers. We just can kind of vaguely make out what's happening at that time. The one that we could really pinned down would be when when the family moved down uh, to, I, I believe it was Nanjing, so the, the large city in the south, and there is this upheaval of the citizenry, and there's an army that marches in. And that appears to be, from what I've read online and from what you can gather from the historical timeline, that that was the 1911 revolution that finally spelled the demise of the Qing, Q-I-N-G, of the Qing dynasty. So that was the end of 2000 plus years of imperial China, to put in perspective the the momentous occasion of, of what's happening here. So essentially, at this period in time, uh, in the aftermath of the Boxer Rebellion and the Opium Wars, uh, from the uh, from the eighteen from the 1800s, there's a significant amount of foreign intervention within China. Yeah, the hundred years the of hundred years. You had the, you had the British, yes. right? You had the British. The introduction <laughs> of opium uh, that that the Brits were cultivating. Uh, in India, it's used as a way to pay the Chinese for, for various goods that are being exported. So this starts to open up China to the outside world, but it induces this epidemic of opium addiction, domestically opium being, and don't have time to, to elaborate on it here, but opium is actually a motif of this, of this book. I mean, mm-hmm. it, 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 it's a recurring kind of recurring, um, recurring uh, phenomena that shows up with a number of people. And it is clearly, a sign, at least in my mind, clearly a sign of, dec- of decadence and also, again, of not having any bearing with, yeah. with concrete concrete yeah. reality in the Almost land. a sign of like villainy yes. or evil. Yes, yeah. right? It's sure. like the more, like, maybe not the most, probably the worst character is the nephew who's like a rapist. Right. Um, but his uncle's family his uncle and the wife, the um, rich lord's wife, they're all opium addicts. And it's to the fact, to the extent that they, Ola or um, Wang Lung and his eldest son, who doesn't have a name, they use it as a weapon against them where they get them hooked on opium to, because they're kind of a pain. They're very shrewd. Yes. Yeah. It's very, it's very calculated. I was like, oh, are they really going to do that? And they did. Yeah. And it worked. It does yeah, work. It worked, yeah, it, and, and it worked. So you have the the, in, the introduction of, of opium. Uh, the Chinese market is open to the outside world. And then in 1911, the Qing dynasty collapses. And in its aftermath, you just have this welter 
of competing factions. You have a period where the nationalists are actually aligned with a surging, with a surging communist party. Now that, and that takes me to one of the other definite historical markers here, which of course is the publication of the book. And so I believe it was 1931, you said, Liz. So this is before Mao has actually gained full steam. So this is before the long march, but, uh, at this time, you nonetheless have this uh, this jostling for influence and control within China between and- the Nationalist Party and expelling <clears throat> the Japanese and expelling all of the European colonial powers. And so you don't you don't really get any explicit references to that in the book. Right. But when it repeatedly refers to armies and distant battles, mm-hmm. and then that one milestone that we have down in Nanjing. Uh, which appears to be again the 1911 revolution, you get a sense for kind of this, this boiling cauldron of what's about to come. And it doesn't really fully burst forth here, but it's right on the precipice. And so that is the relevance of the book to yeah, our time and, right now, that to, this ultimately wound up producing Mao and the Communist Revolution. And Chiang Kai-shek. And yes. now we have China and Taiwan. Right. And it comes from this era of history in which she lived in China. She was there. She, she was, was there, the there for all of that. In fact, she had to, uh, she and her family had to evacuate before the conquering armies they had to leave and there was and that's it yeah that that's interesting you say that liz because there was a slight taste of that Mm. when they were in the southern city so there's this rice kitchen we'd call it a soup kitchen but it was really a rice kitchen for them where everyone would go and it's this remarkable thing to wang long and his family of course because they had just emerged from this famine they were compelled to go south on a train, incidentally, <gasps> which was a what was it called in the a book? Fire it was a fire dragon, a rail dragon. It was so, it, yeah, yeah some, it was something along those lines because he had only heard right. They'd never seen a train. He'd never actually seen one, and so that's really a, a, just a, a kind of an apocal event for him and mm-hmm. his family to be on the train going south. But at any rate, the, these rice kitchens appears as though it's run by missionaries. Is the sense? That I get from it. So, of course, yeah, this is something right there out she of the experience, yeah. right, of, of Pearl Buck. Uh, and there's also the sense that the foreigners who they see there, and there are a couple of instances where Wang uh, is transporting on a rickshaw. Uh, uh, and it, it, I don't know that it said it was an American woman. It was a white woman. It was a white woman yeah. for sure. And it was stunning. Right. To- yeah. What is this? <laughs> yeah, I've never right. seen anything like well, this. Well, he says it's... it because he he takes her in the rickshaw and he yells out to another guy in Chinese. He's like, "What is this?" Yeah, <laughs> and they're like, "Oh, it's an American woman." They're like, "Get all the money you can out of her." He's like, well, they, because they always pay too much yeah. and they don't know the value of silver. I believe was the line in in the book. Yeah, which was so great. You get you get a sense of this this growing uh, distaste among the Chinese populace for all of these foreign powers who had intervened in their country and brought about the scourge of opium, etc. Well, and there is a part where he is out and about in the southern city, and someone hands him um, a tract, and there's a Chinese man who is speaking in front of I think in some sort of like city square. And the theme of it, I remember thinking, oh, communism is happening, because the theme of what he was saying was, mm-hmm. you know, the rich have gotten too rich, and it has the wealth has to come back down to the people. And the hubbub at the camp where they live, the kind of homeless camp, is um, all these men saying, well, you know, the, the rich are going to have to give up that wealth someday, and if I were rich, I would do this. And Wang Lung, in his earthly innocence, is like, well... I would just buy more land. And they're like, <laughs> you farmers, you, fool. you farmers in your land. Yeah. Like, you don't even know what you could do with all this money. And I mean, they eventually get that money and they do, of course, go back to the land. Um, but it's definitely, you can feel the unrest in the city. And uh, there's literally a rebellion and there's literally conscription happening. Um, and I just remember, I remember wondering what moment in time we were. Because I was like, I feel like this is, you can feel the seeds of communism kind of being planted very much. It's a great depiction, actually, of revolution because in that scene... When Wang, uh, when, when all of the, the people in the shanty town are storming 
uh, are storming the the mansion. The way that it's described in the book it is as if Wang is just carried in. He's by squished this tide. by this. It is crowd. this tide. In other words, he and he is in the currents of revolution, and he can't and get out. Splash! He can't get out, and he is just splashed into this house where now he has an opportunity to change his his life in the midst, and it is change in part because yeah. of the astuteness. Of Olam mm-hmm. at yeah. the time, who who kind of has enough wits about her to realize that this is that this is this going is their to be, moment. This yeah. is their moment. Yeah, it's really shocking to think about the trajectory of the whole book and the comment on human hubris that you can own land, <laughs> that yeah. you can own land, you and can't that make you, it give you food, right. right? And that that is the thing that counts. It's not the thing it count that counts and it's not the wealth the thing that counts it is that moment where they're working the land together where there's human harmony and human connection that's what really counts well that's when they're the most really the most prosperous yeah in their moment when they didn't have the money and that's when the land is the most fertile for them is when they're working that harmony together yeah and then it's gone and they don't get it back. And there's no political party. There's no amount of wealth. There's no amount of land. There's no amount of concubines right. that can bring back That's right. those moments of contentedness. And they never get that again. It was within them. It, it was, was within, within them, them in those within, moments. Within. And yeah, yet the, the earth it doesn't cooperate. It's not a human error well, and they're that only... causes the famine. Right. Their only effort to harness nature to do what they want is this system of dikes. And there's the one episode, which is the only explicit discussion of actual politics in the book, really, Mm -hmm. where the community members know that these dikes are about to burst. They need reinforcements, so they pool their money. They give them to a local magistrate who's never seen this much money, and he basically absconds with it. Just He just embezzles all of it and yeah, he doesn't corrupt. fix the levies and they just keep breaking and he's it's this corruption he is one there. of these corrupt government officials right. that mao uh was yes. was decrying later on to rally rally the peasantry well i think that we've we have uh we've given a pretty pretty <laughs> pretty pretty resounding uh pretty resounding summary here of the main characters and the incredible sweep of material that's covered in the book. How about we maybe finish off with one one final thought? Yeah. So actually, Charlie, do you want to finish off talking a little bit about religion oh, and the Taoist um, kind of mindset? Because I think that's really the bow on this. I think that's well, maybe what the underlying... Yeah, a little bit. Um, because religion throughout it is kind of benign. We talked a little bit about their relationship to these clay gods, but nobody is apparently very devout. They go to them when they need something or when there's a big event, they'll <laughs> right. light a little incense. But other than that, they don't they don't really come up. And then there's another there's another god the, that's not the earth god. There's this weather god that he, you know, occasionally curses because there's not enough rain or there's too much rain. And so that's you know, that's a lot of the the actual religion formal religion that's in there but i thought it was uh pretty fascinating to think about uh from the perspective of the author because she was as been mentioned a presbyterian missionary at first and she was kind of important uh for something stateside that had to do with the uh foreign mission work that she was a part of and that's in the big part the big story is this fundamentalist modernist controversy within the American Western Protestant Church, and she, you know, played a, a not insignificant role in that because she was this missionary who had been there and done the work, and then she ended up kind of coming out against how Americans had been doing it, how they had. It's, these are my words, but essentially decrying how American missionaries were uh, condescending. They were, uh, they were kind of rude and uncharitable to the people they were supposed to be ministering to rather than helping them with the things that they needed. I think the way that she puts this in the book is Wang Lung comes home with this 
Christian tract that's got a picture of Jesus Christ on it on that's the cross. Right. Oh, he right. has yeah. he has no idea what this is, who this is, what it's for, and so his wife uses it to fix a shoe. Um, and like <laughs> that's a, right. Aaron pointed that. out in one of our earlier discussions, you know that's that's a real cool picture of of this disconnect where what they needed was something to fix their shoes, and that that ends up being her her message here, but. She didn't denounce her faith, just how her denomination and other great Western denominations were sending missionaries to these other countries, essentially trying to Westernize the people, Americanize, Christianize the people, rather than respecting the cultures that they were already in, their own languages and their own practices and traditions and things like that. And, and so I think that, that finds its way uh, into the book. And also, I... I I can't help but think that this was on her mind when she's writing the whole thing. Uh, in the book of Genesis, after uh, Adam and Eve have sinned and God is pronouncing his curse on them, the way he says it to Adam is, thorns and thistles the earth will yield for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your bread until you return to the ground, because out of it were you taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return." And I think she made this epic out of <laughs> that curse. <laughs> and Charlie, yeah. I can not end it any better than that. So <laughs> thank you. You've taken it right there. I mean, obviously that had to be, I mean, based on her, her formation, her faith formation and the title of the book, that very clearly is, is one of the overriding themes. No doubt about it. So to all the audience, if you want to understand the development of the communist revolution and also want a great story mm -hmm. with some pretty powerful meditations on wealth, agrarianism, love, uh, and, uh, and drug addiction, among <laughs> other topics, the will to survive, Absolutely. this is a great, this is a great, great book to read. All right. Well, I think we'll wrap it up there. Again, uh, Dr. Woodworth, uh, Colonel Gartland, thank you so much for joining me and Charlie today to talk about this book. This is probably our last one uh, that Charlie and I are going to be doing because everybody's about to PCS out of here, our last book review. So thank you again so much for sitting down and talking about this stuff with us. We've really had such a good time talking about it. Thank you, Liz. Thank you. Charlie, Aaron, thanks for all your efforts over the last two years. You bet. Thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Air Force Judge Advocate General School Podcast. You can find this and all our available episodes, transcriptions, and show notes at www.jagreporter.af.mil slash podcasts. You can also find us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Please give us a like, a rating, a follow, or a subscription. Nothing from this show should be construed as legal advice please consult an attorney for any legal issues. Nothing in this show is endorsed by the federal government, the United States Air Force, or any of its components. All content and opinions are those of the guests and hosts. Thanks.